Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Anna Kaltenbeck. But first, we'd like to check in on current health news. And Harlan, you brought up to me today uh, a series of articles uh, related to exercise. Um, and all I kept fixating on after I saw that was the uh, tiny mice on these tiny treadmills. So <laughs> tell me more, because I think I got distracted by the little mice treadmills. And there, there's really a very interesting mouse study. But I want to first talk about this UK Biobank. Study. You know, I you know I love a good UK Biobank study. I often bring these up in the podcast. And to remind folks, the UK Biobank is an amazing study of more than about 500,000 people in the United Kingdom who've agreed to donate information, provide biospecimens, undergo imaging, sometimes uh, put on wearables, and then be followed over time. And it, it's really kind of one of the best examples of a study where they've accumulated an enormous amount of data about, about people throughout uh, the United mm -hmm. Kingdom and made that data available to researchers around the world so that they can exploit it to, to learn things. And it's yielding so many, so many important insights. So what's up this time? Well, there was a group of investigators uh, who were interested in looking at physical activity. Now, you may think physical activity, you know, don't we know enough about that? Certainly there are many studies showing that there's a very strong relationship between the amount of physical activity you do and the ability to sort of lower risks of mortality and, and, and morbidities, including cardiovascular and cancer. But one of the things they decided to look at was what about the timing of when you exercise, when you do your activity? And uh, does that matter? It can, is this just about adding up how many steps you take or what kind, whether you do moderate to vigorous activity, and that was their focus, by the way, moderate to vigorous activity, or does it matter? Because as you know, there are lots of studies that are coming out now about the importance of circadian rhythms, even when you eat, you know, the whole thing about intermittent fasting. So, so let me just stop by that, by the way, Howie. I know you're a, a, an exercise aficionado. This is something that you do every day in your life. Do you have a particular favorite time that you exercise? So I do aerobic exercise typically in the morning, but I do sometimes do it in what they would consider the afternoon, the 11, after 11 o'clock in the morning. But I do do about an hour of what they describe as vigorous exercise every day. Um, and and I I'm so proud of you. You're, you're, you're just so devoted to that. That's, I think that's wonderful. I, I, I think I'm addicted to it. I need it in order to function properly. So the UK Biobank took some, remember I said there were about 500,000 people in it. So about 100,000 of them were identified and agreed to uh, wear a wearable, uh, uh, like a, you know, a, a watch or something that was going to collect their activity. Um, for about seven days and record all their activity over that course of that time uh, within the day. And then they, instead of asking people how much do you exercise, they were able to take the information that was coming from the wearable and, and to divide people up by when they exercised, how much they exercised and so forth, and then link that with outcomes. And in this case, they, they were able to study people for over about seven years. And over that course of time, only about 3% of people died. Um, and including 1% from, from cardiovascular disease and 2% from cancer. And they found, like everyone else has, that this sort of moderate and vigorous physical activity is associated with a lower risk of all-cause death, of cardiovascular death, cancer mortality. And by the way, it, it sort of topped off that it, it was pretty steep. That is, the more you exercise, the lower your risk came until you got to about uh, 150 minutes uh, per week. And then it, it kind of stopped off. If you did much more than 150, maybe you would feel better. Maybe you liked it. But 
but in terms of your risk of dying, it didn't seem to to affect it. And, and the curves were pretty striking. But now they got to this issue about let's look at three time windows. Let's look at the morning. Let's look at the afternoon. Let's look at the, the, the evening. And they took a look at this. And uh, what they found was, interestingly, was that uh, if you compared the morning to this midday afternoon and evening, that midday afternoon was the sweet spot where actually people had a even lower risk. So the more you did up to 150 minutes, was all good. You got reduced risk. And then if you look between when people exercise this midday afternoon, or if you sort of mixed it up sometimes in different times of the day, like you do, Howie, you actually also uh, generate a benefit. Interestingly, that was for all cause death and for cardiovascular death. For cancer mortality, it didn't seem to make a difference. Now, when you see studies like this, remember, they're not randomizing people to different times of day. They're looking at people's habits. And so it's hard to be really confident about whether there's a signal here, but it did show that you know, there, there was some suggestion of it. So then you may leave this study thinking like, uh, you know, feeling pressure that the actual differences were relatively small between the different times. And what seemed to be the major message was the more, you know, if you more you exercised up to 150 minutes, the better off you are. And they still left with this message about trying to do that. And it gets published in Nature Communications, which is a really good, really good journal. So I, I just say one other thing, you bring up this mouse thing. So there, yeah, there was an article about the mice. Yeah, so article in Washington Post that sort of summarized this article and a couple of others. I sent you that. We'll list it in the end. And uh, they, there was this article where they took these little mice and they put them on little treadmills. And they, they sort of exercised. Some of them stood on the treadmills and some of them got to exercise on the treadmills. And they also had them looking at where, you know, they exercised at different times. And what they found was, interestingly, was that it did matter when these mice exercised. And that uh, the mice who exercise soon after waking up seemed to be in a better position. They were sort of releasing more of these substances that were going to help them uh, re remain healthy. All this is surrogate. They didn't look and see how long did they live, what their lifespan was, but they were sort of looking at their little mouse metabolism. Now, mice aren't people, and whether this translates is hard to know, but it is raising this issue that timing of exercise, timing of eating, all these things, the way our circadian rhythms work. May, uh, you know, I think in, in as coming years, we're going to gain more perspective and understanding about uh, how to optimize uh, all of these things. But yeah, I think it's, not, it's hard not to, to smile when you think about these little mice uh, exercising on the treadmill. And I don't know what kind of music they were playing, but... Uh, I know. I just have this image <laughs> in my head of them wearing headphones and, and working out. But uh, yeah, it made me smile. All right. Hey, let's get to the interview. All right, here we go. Let's do it. Anna Kaltenbeck is a health economist focused on how reimbursement policies shape the market for prescription drugs and other health technologies. She is now a principal and head of the Prescription Drug Reimbursement Group at ATI Advisory, a DC-based healthcare research and advisory services firm. Before that, she was a senior health advisor on the Senate Committee on Finance, working on the Medicare Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, and specifically the prescription drug reimbursement provisions. Before that, she was program director for the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes and the Drug Pricing Lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where she conducted research on prescription drug payment and improving patients' lives. Kalten Beck received her undergraduate and master's degree in economics from Tufts, and then she came to Yale for her MBA, which is where I first had the great honor to meet her. 
So first, I want to welcome you to the Health and Veritas podcast. And Harlan and I are both going to ask you questions about the prescription drug pricing reforms. Uh, really, really hard questions. Really hard questions. <laughs> Absolutely hard. But, but we want to get to the meat of that. But I do want to start off by asking how you got so interested in this area, which you've pursued since college, effectively. Well, first of all, Howie, thank you. Howie and Harlan, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really, really excited to be here because I'm a huge fan of the show and I listen um, every time there's a new episode. So this is really great. Um, and I'm extra excited to get to talk about basically one of my favorite topics in the world, which is how we arrive at prescription drug prices in the United States. So yeah, how did I get here? I think in about 2006, which is when Medicare Part D came online, was when I started my career. And I joined at the time an uh, economic consulting group um, called Analysis Group, where my goal in life was to do some work in health economics and outcomes research so that I would eventually identify the true question that I wanted to answer with the eventual PhD I was going to get in economics. And um, one thing led to another, and I ended up doing consulting for about 10 years because I got really engrossed first in the health economics and outcomes research, but then also in this question of why do manufacturers price the drugs the way that they do and how do payers give access to them? And that led me squarely into the world of pricing and market access strategy and uh, diligence for investments for manufacturers. And that was a pretty fascinating world to be in. What ended up happening, though, was that about 10 years in, I really started to question what seemed to me to becoming the, the, the sort of dominant strategy around drug development and commercialization, which was really that it seemed to me that the driving factor around what determined whether or not a drug was getting developed was really how high of a price a manufacturer could charge for it without getting blocked out of the market by payers. And uh, it's felt that the, it was increasingly feeling that that was becoming secondary to what the drug was achieving for patients. And so I was sort of having some questions around these the, the issues of what the financial incentives in the system were and how they was, were starting to affect affordability, but also innovation. And that's when I met um, Peter Bach, uh, who uh, was the lead at Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at MSK at the time, and was just standing up what eventually became the Drug Pricing Lab. And so he convinced me to try a career change. And so I did. I joined Memorial Sloan Kettering. I worked there for about five years, including the time I was in the MBA program with you, Howie, um, to really kind of dig in on understanding what the incentives are. So spent those five years really getting my feet on the ground in terms of evidence development. And then that translated pretty clearly to the task at hand on Senate finance, where I was really trying to lead forward to a um, Senate framework around Medicare negotiation. So I, I've got just a few questions, and I just want you to really break this down for the audience. You wrote a piece in Health Affairs, and part of the piece you said that, uh, you know, you, you make the point about the drivers of high list prices. Mm -hmm. And you said that really these drivers are related to, to two issues and that the Inflation Reduction Act actually tried to grapple with these underlying drivers of high list prices. And, and you also make the point that it's really a high list prices on a relatively minority of the number of drugs that are available out there. 80% of the drugs are generic. So there's a 20% are non-generic. And in that 20%, there's a small number who are extraordinarily high and they're driving a lot of the costs within healthcare. So I wonder if you could just explain, what do you think, what are the drivers of these high list prices that everyone hears about? And in what ways does the bill that just passed help us to 
to get control of those high, high costs? Harlan, thank you so much. That's a really good question. And I think it gets to the heart of what we're, you know, the continued reform efforts that we're going to be talking about in the next Congress address. And so you're right, there are two major drivers of prescription drug price inflation, especially for um, drugs that get uh, dispensed at pharmacies. And it feels paradoxical, because really, it's a surfeit of competition and a complete act of competition. And what that really boils down to is that for some drugs, there's a lot of therapeutic alternatives. Think, for example, insulins. And so the way that they compete with each other is they compete to get covered on what's called a plan's formulary. Formulary is basically a list of drug that determines what beneficiaries of a plan have access to. And so what happens is these drugs in very competitive classes will compete with each other to be on the formulary. And the way they do that is they offer rebates to the health plans. And it's much easier to offer a lot of rebates if your list price is higher. So this has sort of led over time to this escalation in list prices in categories where you would think that competition would actually bring prices down. And in fact, on the net price level, it does once you take the rebates out of the list price. But the problem, of course, is that patients, when they fill their prescriptions at the pharmacy counter, pay based on the list price. The flip side of this the complete absence of competition is really what happens when there's drugs that are de facto monopolists. And, and that occurs when drugs are essentially the only thing available to treat certain things and health plans have to cover them. Or in the case of Part D drugs, it's the pharmacy benefit in um, Medicare, it's drugs that are required to be covered by CMS and by law. And those are called protected class drugs. They're drugs that treat cancer, depression, other conditions. And so that's... and I should clarify, CMS is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, which determines what these plans offer. So uh, in those instances, what happens is that health plans have to cover the drug. And the question for the manufacturer is, is really, why would you not price your drug high in that context when you basically have guaranteed coverage? And, and just to clarify this, so th- there's one point where where people have to make the drug available so that they can set the price and and they can't be excluded because they must mm-hmm. be in. That's the one case you just said. And the other case we said was where there is a lot of competition and the way in which the pharmaceutical companies manage this through these pharmacy benefit managers is through these rebates. But those rebates aren't available to average people. They're exactly. only available through particular mechanisms when people are making purchases such as payers, much like what happens in the hospital where they may negotiate a rate for United Healthcare. But if I come in without insurance... They're, they're slapping me with a bill that actually no other person, no other group has to see except for the people who have to pay the list price. That, that, that's essentially the two issues you're talking about. Is that right? Bingo. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and then so how did the law address some of these? So basically, the law was really a response to that sticker shock that you're talking about that people were getting at the pharmacy, right? And this is particularly bad for Medicare beneficiaries because they are going to the pharmacy and you know, getting these drugs at a very high cost. And there's no annual out-of-pocket limit um, today in Medicare Part D. And so what happened um, is that this there's a center point of this, this entire framework, which is really that Medicare cost sharing for prescription drugs is now uh, limited to $2,000 a year um, starting in 2025. And it's great for beneficiaries because it's going to let them stop rationing their drugs, um, on the basis of their financial burden. But the downside of it is, um, if you only do that change alone, if you only make that one change, 
you've uh, now taken away one of the few ways in which these plans mitigate costs, which is they rely on that rationing. And so now you have to find a way to keep that insurance policy, to keep these insurance policies sustainable, financially sustainable, um, which means you have to start to tackle some of those underlying dynamics. And that's where three of these policies come in. It's really the Part D redesign, which um, basically shifts liability in later stages of a patient's spending away from government, where it is right now, government pays about 80% um, or government pays 80% of a patient's prescription drug costs in Medicare once they hit a certain threshold. That now shifts over majority to health plans and uh, manufacturers. So that shifts over. And then the other one, the, you know, another like major provision here is the ne- negotiation provision. Um, and that really takes on this issue of lacking negotiating power for these drugs where there is sort of a monopoly position. And then another, the last sort of component on the payment side is really that Medicare is now going to be able to protect the savings from the other two by clawing back um, price increases in excess of inflation. They're spending that's attributable to that. And then it all kind of comes, it sort of comes full circle back to this other tiny little policy in there that says that beneficiaries' um, premiums aren't going to grow by more than 6% over the next couple of years. And that's really designed to ensure that all of these policies have a chance to go into effect and to actually start incurring these savings and keep things stable for beneficiaries. So they're now protected both on the cost-sharing side and on the premium side, while the system really starts to re-equilibrate, hopefully, towards a more rational way of reimbursing for these products. And, and when you put that all together and, you know, you're forced by, by law that the Congressional Budget Office has to score this. They have to actually tell you, is it going to save money? Is it going to cost money? Because there's all sorts of examples where we think we're doing something great and it just costs government a lot of money. When you put the entire prescription drug together uh, and pass it through the Congressional Budget Office, what does the Congressional Budget Office say for this? I think it's hundred uh, billion for uh, negotiation alone. I think it's another sixty something billion for um, the inflation rebates. Um, you know, in, in total, this is a big saver. And the reality of it was that this bill was absolutely conditioned on on incurring savings. That was a, a critical component. Um, it would not have been possible without showing yeah. that. And it's one of the few places, Howie, I think, where yeah. we save but money not only for the consumer but also for government. So this is a very unique arrangement in that respect. Absolutely. There are many people who worry that this bill will stifle innovation. Uh, Is that a concern for you? Or what do you think about that? We took a lot of that into account when we when we were really working on the provision. And I will say one thing, there's evidence, you know, there wasn't so much in the last couple of years, but recently there's been a couple of pretty convincing studies that suggest that when manufacturers are, are forced to give up revenues on older products, they'll switch their investment into newer ones, developing new drugs. So I there's it's a mixed, you know, a lot of the industry is arguing around specifics right now. I will say that Broadly speaking, a big part of the strategy of sort of focusing this thing around older drugs was also that the hope was that the investment would go towards developing new blockbuster products. I mean, that's the, that's the idea, right? That's how we fund this this beast of, of medical innovation, pharmaceutical innovation anyways. And so my hope is absolutely that um, we will see a repeat of what we saw after the FTC at Tavis decision, which basically said that drug companies can't pay generic makers to stay off the market. But what we saw yeah. in that instance was that they actually poured money into R&D. There are some really expensive drugs that are in the biologic category, mostly they're protein-based drugs, very large molecules. 
And for some reason, the way the bill is written, those drugs do not face this type of negotiation until 11 years, whereas the smaller molecule drugs, which can be very expensive, but are at least a little less likely to face that competition in, or negotiation, I should say, in six years. Can you explain why that decision gets made and how it's made? Sure. Yeah. So seven years for the small molecules and 11 for the biologics. And uh, it's the first thing. Uh, and uh, yes, the industry has argued that this is this this creates problems in terms of investment decisions. We can talk about why that may or may not be true. Um, but the genesis of all of this is that we already treat small molecules very differently from large molecules um, in existing. So in current law. Uh, and one of the major differences is that we grant far fewer years of market exclusivity um, to small molecules than we do to biologics. Now, you could certainly make the argument that um, maybe we should revisit the, the way in which we prefer biologics over small molecules. But the fundamental reality is that the, the IRA uh, is consistent with that treatment with the slight difference that it actually reduces the amount of time. Um, between the two facing that negotiation. Uh, so it's actually less of a gap. There's, there's less daylight in the, in the IRA than in areas in some of these other um, legal constructs. You know, I think one of the interesting things that you've illuminated th through your work on this law is that the way that the Part D, the, the drug benefit uh, of Medicare was configured, it allowed the sponsors and the manufacturers to benefit from these high list prices, sort of creating this sort of impetus for them to be, if anything, cheerleading for the for the high prices, right? I mean, it, it was that they shifted that financial liability to the Medicare program. So then they, they weren't in that. And, and then the other thing you said, I'm just sort of emphasizing for people listening, was that, that this open-ended financial liability for people in Medicare who were spending lots of money could be really bankrupt people. I mean, they, despite the fact that they were being covered by a drug plan, they were put in a position, especially with these high cost drugs, where, as you were saying, there was no limit. Whereas you sought to address these through the ways that, that you said, the cap to $2,000. I mean, I still don't know whether when people heard that from President Biden that they really understood the kind of protection that that was providing seniors to ensure that they weren't going to be vulnerable to this open-ended financial liability. What was it like to negotiate this? Because you didn't really get bipartisan support in the end for this kind of strategy. And, and did you, I mean, what kind of discussions were going on that you can share on the Hill as you were trying to navigate through this improvement in the current program? Uh, that's a great question. So yeah, it was not a bipartisan process. Um, and that definitely created some limiters because both the House and the Senate were on very, very slim margins. So uh, it did mean that there were some elements of this bill that got scaled back relative to where it might have been if it had been the Build Back Better construct that we saw a year before that, which was really you know much broader negotiating authority, at least initially as it was envisioned through the House, which then got scaled back to mostly older drugs and a lot fewer drugs. Um, what really, I think what carried the day, especially for the negotiation provision, which is I think where the greatest amount of daylight was between Republicans and Democrats here, was that there was just, it was incontrovertible that a small number of drugs were disproportionately responsible for spending in Medicare Part D, that it was the same number of drugs, or that it was the same drugs that had been on the market for a really long time. They weren't necessarily, you know, they weren't changing the therapeutic standard of care or anything like that. They'd been there for a long time. The manufacturers who are making aren't necessarily putting that money that they're making from these products into developing 
create new products that might address additional problems. And meanwhile, you see these patients who are vulnerable and have bought into a program that honestly was meant to protect them from this uh, now really getting damaged. And that I think was really what carried the day. It was a very cleanly definable target and people were able to identify with the, the folks who were getting harmed by it. And I think that's how that evolved. And just one quick follow-up, which is, so what would you have wished that you could have gotten into this bill that you couldn't, given the political realities of the of the day? You know, I, I don't want to, I'll, I'll say this, I don't really want to handicap it that way. Um, it, you know, you can always quibble with one provision, uh, you know, like I would have changed this one line to do this one thing differently. Um, what I will say is this, which is that the Inflation Reduction Act is a pretty dramatically scaled back version of the vision that the Biden administration and Democrats had in the previous year, which was Build Back Better, this much larger package that would have also extended benefits like dental vision and hearing and other things. I'm beyond pleased that we managed to pass a bill that both addresses climate change uh, policy and drug pricing policy. It would have been wonderful to see some of those savings also go towards things that would benefit people in other ways. So, you know, addressing food insecurity or helping folks uh, afford their dental vision and hearing would have been wonderful. Um, so I certainly do. And I think definitely at the time that we learned we're going to be moving forward without those provisions more in those. Um, and I do hope that there's an opportunity in the future to take these savings and put them towards people living a better life that way. Given the experience that you had working with this very slim margin, what are your expectations in the current Congress now with a GOP-led House uh, for passing anything, for instance, like insulin pricing reform, which constantly comes up and does seem to at times have bipartisan support? I, there are areas where there's bipartisan focus. Um, I don't know about bipartisan support necessarily because sometimes the, there is a partisan position in terms of what the actual underlying problem is and what the ideal solution to that problem would be. But I will say that things I'm watching closely include the insulin question, as you were arguing. I also am watching very closely um, changes towards um, changes on the legislation governing pharmacy benefits managers. That's these companies that provide yeah. pharmacy benefits, not only for Part D, but other plans as well, um, which both sides of the aisle have signaled interest in. Well, th this has really been terrific. We so appreciate you coming in, sharing the wisdom and your experience around this. And, and like I said, I mean, we all owe you a debt of gratitude for, I can't even imagine how many hours you have invested in this over those years. And and like I said, there are just unsung heroes on the Hill who actually are doing the day-to-day -day work that, that put a bill together like this and make it possible. And, and like you said, I hope it'll, it'll just be still the beginning of an evolution and iteration, but our healthcare system needs iteration, if not whole-scale reform. And it's going to take people who really understand the details to help get us through this. Thank you so much for this. Well, Howie, that was a really, really great interview. Um, so glad that you were able to bring Anna here. And, and, you know, we benefit so much when you bring back your students. Uh, so many of your students have just done such outstanding work, and she's a really great example of that. Hey, so what's been on your mind this week? Let's pivot to that section of the podcast. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I told you about this. It frustrated me, and maybe I'm just overreacting to it. But there's been a four-year investment of effort by a large group uh, sponsored by Health Affairs, which is a journal that I particularly respect a lot. It does a lot of good in the policy space, both domestically and globally. 
Um, and they looked at healthcare spending and what could we do, what can help us control healthcare spending in the days, months, years ahead. The title of it is a roadmap for action. There are two things that bothered me about it, and I'd love to hear your feedback on both of them. The first is that it just seemed extremely non-ambitious. Like they excluded some topics, which I understood they explicitly said they didn't want to tackle it, but they didn't want to talk about some of the factors in which government actually causes our healthcare system to not operate at its best. Many, many issues that we could be tackling and how we could be spending our money better. That was one. And then the other thing is that the, the study of four years with some of the greatest names in health policy, people that you and I both know or know of, uh, people who have done really good work and bipartisan but the study itself gets sponsored by a industry coalition of the pharmaceutical industry and by one of the largest health insurers in the country. And I just, I can't imagine what they were thinking to decide to let two of the most profitable parts of our healthcare industry sponsors a study like this. Yeah, I mean, certainly the optics aren't aren't great on that, but I, I, my guess is, my hunch about this is that, you know, you get together a bunch of experts who are, you know, pretty much still part-time. I mean, they're coming in maybe for some meetings or having some calls, and they also are coming from maybe different directions in terms of prior statements or political affiliations. It's hard to broker, you know, like a revolutionary document that's going to fundamentally reshape the way we think about healthcare. I think maybe you and I think that we've just got such a fundamentally flawed system where we see that there are so many people who experience financial toxicity, have issues still with access, the underinsurance, just the, the structural piece of this healthcare system, which continues to, to reward more and more without respect to actually the quality of the outcomes that are achieved. You know, we've, we've just got immense problems that we need to, re, you know, fix. And when you get to the pricing part of it, you know, somebody's going to win and someone's going to lose in a reshuffling of the way in which healthcare dollars are spent. And and it's probably hard to broker when you get together such a large, accomplished group. And sometimes I think a small group needs to be able to put up a straw man for people to react to and really put forth some really clear principles. But mostly when you get these consensus panels, it's rare that uh, that there will be something comes out. There have been exceptions, I think, to Eris Human that came out of the uh, Institute of Medicine, uh, National Academy of Medicine, was was quite a document that that changed things. There have been some documents uh, that uh, you know have been issued that change people's perspective on the, what should be done, but but I think they're the exception more than the rule. I'm going to go on record and say that this is not going to be one of those, but I I will say you know Upton Sinclair has a quote that paraphrased is something like never expect someone to, um, you know, uh, accept change when his salary depends on not understanding it or, or to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. And I think in this particular case, they were charged with doing something, they did something, but I don't think they did anything that was going to upset the apple cart at all. So you've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromoltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. 
aside from Twitter and our podcast. I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. You know, and how we should say to listeners, you know, it's not that we don't think there are miraculous things that occur in healthcare every day or that there aren't dedicated no, people making contributions. It's just we think we can do better than we currently do. It's not 100%. It's not for lack of admiration, right? I mean, we, we do admire. No, we're the, we have the greatest healthcare in the world for a large number of people. We're just, we do not have an equitable system and we have a system that wastes so much that we probably could have both equity as well as a robust system. And we're making trade-offs that I don't think we would accept if we were starting from scratch. Yeah. So it's not that we're not appreciative or admiring of what's being accomplished. It's just we don't think we're anywhere close to what we should be able to do. Correct. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.